You're listening to episode 166 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest, Coach Justin Russ. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. My name is Mirabhan Aranshad, a former Division I college tennis player. And on the show, I interview the world's top pros, coaches, and experts to help you improve your tennis game. And today I'm excited to bring to you an interview that I recently did with coach Justin Russ. And he is currently an assistant strength and conditioning coach at the University of Virginia, working with the men's and women's tennis teams which are the best of the best in the country. Justin has also worked with several pro athletes on the ATP and WTA tours, including Fanny Stoller and Varvara Lepchenko. And he was the head of tennis performance at IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida. Uh, he is also a master instructor for both TRX training and trigger point therapy. And Justin is no slouch at delivering education to the masses. He has actually delivered over 100 live education courses in eight countries and has presented at many conferences as well. Uh, Justin is also very well educated in his field, which is obviously why I brought him on the show. He holds certifications, uh, many, many of them, but a couple of them that I'll let you know about, uh, one that I can really appreciate uh, above, above many, or among many rather, uh, one is he is a certified tennis performance specialist with the International Tennis Performance Association, of which I'm also uh, a member and certified with them as well. Uh, Justin is also a CSCS and RSCC with the National Strength and Conditioning Association. And I'm really excited to bring this interview to you to educate you about strength and conditioning, movement, and how to structure your fitness training. And so we get in depth with all these topics, and uh, you'll also learn, obviously, about the seven foundational movements to build an effective training program. I found it really useful, and as soon as I heard these seven foundational movements from Justin, I, I knew that I'd, I'd be titling this episode that because it's, it's a really important part of the episode to hear about them. And I think, uh, I think that you'll really enjoy this one. And if you're interested in improving your tennis fitness, uh, specifically these elements of strength and conditioning, movement, and how to structure your fitness training, then you're in for a treat. So without further ado, here is my interview with Coach Justin Russ. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. It's really an honor and a pleasure to have Coach Justin Russ on, this episode, uh, on today's episode. And uh, today we're going to talk about strength and conditioning, movement, and how to program your fitness workouts. And it's really exciting for me to have Justin. Uh, I've, I've seen a lot of his videos on 
social media, and he's currently an assistant strength and conditioning coach at the University of Virginia, um, which makes me think of when I interviewed Brian Boland uh, a couple years ago, but just a, a very storied and great program of best of the best. And he, Justin has also worked with a lot of ATP and WTA pros, and I was actually checking out your stories um, from the WTA tour earlier today, Justin, but uh, it's really great to have you on and thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's 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 always a pleasure coming on to podcasts such as these, and I know you've had an opportunity to sit down with um, with some really elite companies. So, thank you for uh, thank you for reaching out, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, anytime, anytime. You know, I was really impressed by a lot of the content that you've been sharing on social media, and it's kind of the power of of those platforms where you get to just randomly see people who are demonstrating some really good value. So, definitely happy to have you on. So. I mean, I, I just asked you this, you know, before I hit the record button, but, um, you know, just generally, how is everything going uh, in Charlottesville for you? Because um, I saw that, you know, you and the team have started working out again recently. So how's everything going? Yeah, so I think, first of all, it's it's just awesome to be back with my kids. And and I call them my kids because, you know, I'm, I'm only a little bit older than them, but, you know, they're like, they're like family to me and, and we have great relationships and being apart was tough. It was like, you don't really realize just how much you enjoy working with your athletes and how much, you know, they kind of pick you up on given days until, you know, you're, you're without them for five to six months. But, um, it's been great, but at the same time, it's been absolutely crazy. Um, you know, you go from this period of time when you were working from home, creating remote programming, maybe getting on, you know, a bunch of zoom calls and, you know, creating training packets for your athletes for five to six months to now being right back into a, a full coaching schedule. And I think, you know, I almost forgot how much energy coaching required and how taxing it could be. And with all the COVID protocols in place and weight room capacity restrictions and conditioning capacity restrictions, you have a lot more training hours in, in a given day to accommodate the same roster sizes. But as busy as it is, it's it's awesome. Um, it's year two with my players, so they know me, I know them, and it's just it's just still building on what we've established last year. So it's it's been a lot of fun. Awesome, awesome to hear that, Justin. And yeah, I mean, I was, I was like I said, looking at your posts, and I saw some of your players saying, you know, how how much they missed training with you. So that's always obviously a, a great sign of, of the work that you're doing. Um, I don't know if you can go in more into depth into some of those uh, restrictions, like the particulars of, of like the weight room and other restrictions that are uh, placed upon at least uh, UVA. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I want to give a shout out to the sports medicine staff here. I think they've done a tremendous job of just keeping everybody safe and and establishing just sound protocols that are that are based on the science and based on the research to come back in a really intelligent fashion. Um, basically, the way that it worked was, you know, the high revenue generating sports came back came back first, um, kind of in the mid to late summer. So football and basketball have been back for, for quite some time, and then towards the end of uh, the end of summer, the fall sports returned, and so that was the volleyballs, that was the field hockey, soccer. And there were, there were protocols in, in place to limit the number of athletes in the weight room. Masks should be worn at all times. Um, hand sanitizer on the way in, hand sanitizer on the way out. Uh, obviously, thorough cleaning, 
no sharing of equipment um, at the beginning um, and obviously practice of social distancing. Um, and once it was demonstrated to where the athletes could adhere to those protocols in a professional way, capacities were expanded and um, more flexibility was provided in terms of the sharing of equipment. And then once classes began um, a couple of weeks ago, that's when uh, the rest of the student athletes uh, returned. So that's when I was able to start working with tennis, obviously being a spring sport. Awesome. Yeah. Shout out to uh, sports men. I remember when I was an athlete, you know, and got some uh, injuries like they were so helpful. But um, yeah, it's, it's really important, obviously, to have these uh, safety protocols in place. It's a crazy time. And I was just curious about the masks because, um, you know, I help run. Um, I'm the VP of a uh, county tennis association, uh, obviously, in my county. And, and so we run the USTA leagues and we've been kind of thinking about like, you know, obviously the masks and, and whatnot. But uh, has it been difficult for the athletes in terms of things like recovery and, and breathing uh, to wear a mask during play? And, um, and also, like, are there specific masks that are better to use as an athlete than others? Yeah, so, I mean, I think, I think with it being the first experience to training with a mask on for an athlete, there's obviously a, a curve of discomfort that takes place there, right? And it's it's like a wow, holy crap! Like uh, this is the first time I've ever lifted weights in a mask, and this is the first time I've ever done conditioning type stuff in a, in a mask. Um, and I think it's just important, really, that I kind of, as the coach and as the the leadership figure in the room, really kind of set the tone and establish the own ex my own example with it, and acknowledge like, hey, look, this might not be ideal, but this is what's at stake. And if we want to compete this year, then we have to stick to these protocols. Um, and I know that, you know, if, if people in positions of leadership, such as myself, uh, administration, coaches, force medicine, continue to set the tone and continue to, you know, stay on these kids because it's, it's not comfortable at the end of the day. Um, but everybody wants to compete and it's important to keep the bigger picture in mind. Um, and as far as the question about, masks being better than the others, I just encourage my athletes to wear whatever mask they feel the most comfortable in. So if that's the neck gator style, if that's the surgical style mask, I prefer the simple surgical style masks personally myself. I think they're a little bit lighter and easier to breathe. But, um, you know, if, if you have to wear a face covering, I would, I would just tell my athletes to, to wear whatever comfortable for them. Nice, nice. I think you, you got to make a few, put your face on them. I think that would be kind of fun. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, just an idea, but, uh, good stuff there. And, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in the, the paths of people who have become experts in their field. And so I want to kind of start with, with your path, um, you know, after these intro questions, of course, and, and ask you how you, uh, or what inspired you to become a uh, strength and conditioning coach? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. And that's one that, that comes up in a lot of these podcast interviews that I do. And, you know, honestly, I, I played sports growing up. I grew up playing football and lacrosse um, in upstate New York. And, you know, I think, you know, you get to that point when you're in school and it's your parents and society and the education system kind of, you know, pushing you and nudging you to you know, say, hey, look, it's time to figure out what you're what you're going to do with your life. And I think it was my like junior year of high school when a teammate of mine on the football team, you know, went up to me in the weight room and said, Hey, look, you'd be a great trainer someday. Mm. And, you know, up until that point, I never thought about it. I didn't know that you could study exercise science in, in college and major in it. 
But once I figured that out, I was, I was all in with it. I'm like, I want to get into this industry. I want to work with athletes. Um, I don't want to, you know, have to get dressed up every day to go to an office and sit behind a computer because I'm just not that kind of person. Um, and, and it just went from there. Um, when I got into undergrad, I studied exercise science and it's, it's just been a lot of right, right people, right places, right timing and, and a lot of luck to end up now at, at UVA and, and had some of the previous experiences that I've had. Yeah, you've had some great experiences. I mean, with IMG, uh, I saw a couple of videos of you on YouTube coaching at the Muerte Glow Academy. Um, you know, like I said, work with some great uh, pro players. So, um, you know, you talked about other sports um, that, that you were playing when you were growing up, you know, tackling people and so forth. But um, what or how were you exposed to the tennis side of uh, strength and conditioning? Yeah, that's funny. I'll back up for just a second. I didn't realize that those videos from Mortaglu were up on YouTube. Yeah, there <laughs> um, you go. That was yeah. actually, and that was, <laughs> that's funny. That's news to me. That was, that was actually when I was interviewing there um, prior to prior to getting started with, um, with like my second stint on the WTA tour. Um, mm. That's funny. Um, how did I get involved with tennis? This is another kind of, you know, one of those things where it's just right people, right places, right timing, and just kind of tennis found me essentially. Um, while I was working at IMG, I, you know, was assisting across the board with, with multiple different sports. So I was assisting on tennis, assisting on golf and soccer, football, basketball. And what had happened was we had two strength coaches leave within like a week of one another. So we had our head person from lacrosse leave. And we had our head person for tennis also move on. And I was pumped because the head person in charge of lacrosse left. And now I kind of slid into that because I was assisting him with it. And this was my sport growing up. I'm like, finally, I can make lacrosse my baby. And this is my sport, you know. But at the same time, it was like this big purple elephant in the room in, in the office. And everybody was kind of looking at each other like, okay, well, who is going to take this beast that is tennis, right? It's the biggest sport at IMG. It's obviously the one that has a lot of eyes on it. And you know what? I just said, you know, it's my time to step up and I'm going to start writing the programming for this next semester. And I started programming for the entire lacrosse program and the entire tennis program um, for a semester at IMG. And by the end of that time, the administration there uh, decided that they enjoyed the work that I did with tennis. The feedback was good and the players bought in. I really enjoyed it. I liked, you know, working with a different kind of athlete. I thought that it evolved my coaching quite a bit. And IMG basically said, hey, look, you can be the head person for lacrosse or tennis, but you can't do both. Right. So I had a, a great conversation with my friend Vinny and we kind of talked about how tennis was more of a global sport and have the opportunity to work with professional athletes, have an opportunity to travel, which I love to do. And, and I wanted to, you know, continue to learn about this, this sport that isn't such a mainstream sport for American strength coaches mm -hmm. and what, where, you know, where better to do that than, than IMG. And that's, that's, that's how I fell into it. Good choice. I'm glad you, you picked tennis. <laughs> uh, obviously, it's, it's been one of my better decisions. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, same here. Um, so as far as, uh, you know, your, your change in sports uh, focus, uh, I'm interested to find out from you, you know, cause we, I like to compare sports and, you know, pick what's useful and what's not. What are some maybe different aspects or how did you program tennis players differently from other sports? Um, I think that's just been a, a learning process, to be honest with you. I think at the beginning, I stuck to the basics, which I still do, but I, I stuck to what I know and I stuck to the simple things and, 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 and things that I know, knew that would work. And I think as I've evolved and grown as a coach with tennis and, you know, been around people like Mark Kovacs and been around people like Rafi Ohashi, who works with Ken Ishikori and been around people like Glenn Weiner and the coaches I'm with right now, Andres Pedroso, um, the more I've learned about the intricacies that exist in tennis in terms of playing style, in terms of foot positions, in terms of movement skills on the court, in terms of strategy and tactics, I think that's, that those things have definitely played a role in the evolution of, of my programming, both in the weight room and on the court and in terms of, in terms of conditioning. So I would say that, you know, simply put, at the beginning, it was, it was quite general and quite broad um, but over the span of time and, and having the opportunity to learn from so many great people in the tennis world i've been able to you know develop and continue to develop a a program that i think has been quite good to help tennis athletes play and perform better on the court got it awesome justin yeah and you mentioned dr mark kovacs uh he's a legend and um now he's with the Cleveland Cavaliers, which is sick as their director of sports science, I think. And um, you and I have, have one thing in common, although I think you're at a higher level than I am. But, you know, we're both certified by the International Tennis uh, Performance Association, which Dr. Mark Kovacs uh, and his wife, Mary Jo, had. So great organization there. Um, as far as your certifications, I was curious, you know, there, there are a lot of coaches also listening. Um, what are maybe the top two or three certifications or knowledge from these particular organizations uh, that you end up using the most on a daily basis? So in other words, like maybe what are the best ones that maybe coaches or other people are interested in learning uh, about the tennis fitness side of things? Like which ones are the best ones? Yeah. So in terms of, in terms of tennis fitness and, and, and being very particular to tennis, I think that's Doing the certified tennis performance specialist through the ITPA was a, was a game changer for me. And it was cool because Mark actually came down to IMG Academy to kind of lead us through that live and practical portion of that certification. So it was, it was really, really insightful for me and really impactful for me to be able to get on court with Mark and go through, you know, some tennis specific footwork. Um, some movement patterns, some stances, look at positioning for the forehand and the backhand, look at positioning for the serve and really just dive into it and have him there and be able to kind of bounce ideas around off him. So I think for any coaches that are working with tennis athletes that are listening, I would highly recommend the International Tennis Performance Association, um, CTPS, for sure. Um I'm really looking forward to taking the functional range conditioning course. I just signed up for functional range conditioning. I'm going to take that in, in November. But to be honest with you, I think 
it's not necessarily about the certifications that one possesses. There's so much great research and great information out there on the internet um, that you can find just peer reviewed articles and books and literature on, on strength and conditioning and on program design and, and so many topics in this field that I would, I would almost encourage up and coming prospective coaches to look into the research and look into the literature as opposed to necessarily going all in on certifications. I like it. Yeah. Great advice for all you uh, aspiring fitness coaches out there, really any coaches actually. Um, so I want to shift some to, uh, to strength and uh, strength training. Um, you know, it's a favorite of mine. I, uh, I remember when I went to law school, I, I stopped playing tennis, but I still ended up, you know, lifting a ton and trying to learn about that. So, um, and this is <laughs> sometimes when I ask this question, some of the coaches, they kind of, uh, you know, shake their head or whatnot. I mean, it's not a crazy question, but it's kind of tough, I guess. But what are some of the most important um, basic strength training exercises that, you know, if somebody came up to you and said, oh, hey, I'm a 4-0 tennis player and I feel like I need to increase my strength, like what are, um, you know, a few basic exercises that you would recommend that they integrate into their workout routine to get, uh, you know, to increase their strength? Yeah, um, I think going back to the previous point, I like to keep things really simple. And I, I think it, it, it just makes for a better experience for the athlete. And it, it's, it just allows for a greater understanding of, of kind of what they're doing too. So I think when you look at, you know, what are the seven foundational movements that every athlete should be competent in? Can they squat? Can they hinge? Can they lunge? Can they push? Can they pull? Can they rotate? Can they plank? So I think if you look at those seven foundational movements, you can then, you know, categorize hundreds of different exercises based upon those. Um, but it all comes back to being competent in those seven foundational movements. Got it. Got it. And which of these seven movements would you say that um, you found that your athletes kind of are lacking in the most and don't really like they forget to just focus on that area? Oh, it's tough. Um, I would say that I would say that athletes in general and, and tennis athletes in particular, I think, need to, to pay particular attention to, to the posterior chain in general. So looking at the posterior chain, looking at the hinge hinge patterns, um, pulling. Right. I think that tennis being such a quad dominant sport with the amount of decelerations and the amount of change of changes of directions that take place. Oftentimes, I think the posterior chain can be a little bit underdeveloped. And let's be honest, the posterior chain is not always the most fun or maybe feels the best to train. Um, additionally, when you look at the upper extremities, tennis posture is a real thing. Um, you have the often elevated traps, the uh, protraction and internally rotated shoulders. So it's, it's important to kind of help pull them out of that posture. And, and again, that goes back to focusing on that on the posterior chain, so the backside of the body. Gotcha, gotcha. So <laughs> I was wondering if maybe you could give us like one exercise for each one of those seven domains. I mean, obviously, you know, we've got the squat there. Okay, I'll, I'll actually back up first off with the squat. Is there a particular variation that you prefer? I saw you doing uh, a front squat on one of your recent posts. Like, is there one that you think is better suited for uh, for tennis athletes? 
Yeah. So another, another kind of little crusade mentally that I've been on lately is mm-hmm. tailor, tailor the program to the athlete, not the athlete to the program. Mm. And what I've really tried to do lately with, with myself is just be less dogmatic. And, you know, although I have something written on a piece of paper, you know, I have to take into consideration the athlete's needs, the athlete's movement abilities, the athlete's injury history, and so on and so forth. I need to be able to tailor the program to the athlete and put them in an, uh, an environment, set them up for success, yet still be able to stick to the philosophy of, of my program and stick to what I'm trying to accomplish in, in terms of goals. Um, so going back to the question about squats, you know, I think when I started with tennis players up until relatively recently, I would have answered that question. Yes, front squats are the best best thing for tennis players. Mm-hmm. Now I'm kind of like, well, the front squat really doesn't put every athlete in the greatest position to succeed. Mm-hmm. So, so why am I having them do that if other athletes might be more comfortable squatting with two kettlebells or squatting with a safety squat bar mm-hmm. um, or back squatting? So I've... I've started to, you know, make some observations with some of my some of my athletes and just recognizing those that might benefit from making adjustments with their squats to having them use the safety bar, having them, you know, use dual kettlebell, or maybe having them stick to the front squat just based on based on how they move. So everything everything has to take context into consideration. And Again, if I kind of go back to my philosophy of tailor the program to the athlete, not the athlete to the program, you know, I need to look at the context of how does this athlete move? What is their positioning like? What is their injury history like? And what variation of this foundational movement is going to suit them the best and set them up for success yet still accomplish the goal? Got it. So maybe if somebody, maybe they underdeveloped in their quads you might choose like a certain variation of the squad or something like that basically to tailor to them yeah i look at i look at movement patterns more than more than anything um if i find that just if i find that a a front squat is is just uncomfortable in terms of the rack position whether it be crossing their arms or if the athlete can't achieve this maybe i'll have them move to the safety bar Mm -hmm. or if i find that an athlete is 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 leaning too far forward up through the torso in a front squat or a back squat, again, maybe that might be a safety bar variation. Um, or if I'm really trying to limit axial loading with somebody, maybe I'll have them stick with the front squat and maybe have them use use the wraps or whatever position is, is comfortable for them. Or it, it just depends on on how, how the athlete moves and, and what's comfortable for them. Got it. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So appreciate that. Uh, it's really important to, you know, I guess that's part of why it's important to not just like simply look at one program that some athletes doing and then assume that it'll just work for you. Um, there's more optimal programs out there and we've got to consult people, you know, like, like Justin, obviously to make sure that we're programming to the best of, um, you know, our current capabilities and so forth. Um, 100%. Yeah. There's, there's not a one size fits all approach. And, 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 and that's one thing that I wish, you know, more coaches knew, especially those that, that dealt with tennis players. It's like we were, we're fortunate at the college level to deal with small roster sizes. And with that, with that in mind, I can 
have a great opportunity to get to know my athletes as people, but get to know the way that they move and kind of their tendencies in the weight room and also their preferences. And with that being said, having that small roster size makes it really easy for me to uh, create more individualized programs for them. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I was wondering, uh, another question I was going to ask you, um, as far as like, I guess when you were at IMG, you know, how difficult was it? Like, were you able to create, you know, a, did you create like one base program and then you just made like certain, you know, adjustments based on the athlete? Like, how did that work out with, with a lot of kids over there? I assume. Yeah. So IMG was, was difficult to individualize, um, mm. because we got to remember IMG is a high school. Yeah. You know, so, so you have a lot more athletes and you have some some variance in ages right so img i was working with kids that were 14 to 17 18 years old and there were you know maybe 25 to 30 of them in a session and maybe myself and maybe two other coaches so there's a lot of stuff going on here it's athletes that are still growing into their bodies athletes that may not possess proper foundational movement competency athletes that might not you know have a, a great deal of, of training experience or high training age um, and athletes that might not possess a great deal of emotional maturity. So I think for the certain level um, of high school aged athletes at IMG Academy, it was pretty generalized. Now, as the level of tennis athlete rose, so as I started to work with um, the IT, uh, ITF junior level players and the ranked junior level players and the pros, then things started to become uh, much more individualized because I was dealing with athletes at a higher level. The groups were smaller and these athletes typically, you know, had a certain level of, of professionalism not found in, in the high school and, and the more casual players. Got it, Justin. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense there. Um, and, and so kind of back to those seven domains, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind giving us like, you know, one or two just like uh, common, you know, exercises they Obviously, like we talked about, it may not be the best for you, but just kind of to give them an idea of like what exactly, for example, is a hinge movement and so forth, like if, if you don't mind doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I'll start at the top. So start with the plank, but yeah. taking the plank and turning it into a total body exercise. And, you know, rather than just sitting there for a minute, two minutes and holding it as long as you can, let's take the plank and literally try to engage the entire kinetic chain. So squeezing the quads, squeezing the glutes, mm. engaging the core, kind of locking the shoulder blades in place and thinking about ripping the ground apart with your hands, that'll light up everything. It'll completely change the movement. Mm -hmm. um, you can also, you know, take that same concept and work in the frontal plane and do the side plank the same way. So then, um, then we take then we take the pole for example. So when we look at when we look at pulls and pushes, we're looking at two uh, directions of movement. We can look at a horizontal pull, like a row or a TRX row, a vertical pull, like something like a pull up or a pull down, push. That would be something like a, a chest press or a dumbbell uh, dumbbell press. Mm -hmm. um, a vertical a vertical push would be like a like a dumbbell press here. Lunging. Um, the thing to know with uh, with lunging would be, hey, look, we can lunge in, in multiple planes of movement. And it's important that both hips contribute to that movement. And I want to get uh, some bend on that back leg. 
But lunging is extremely, uh, extremely crucial for tennis athletes. You know, when you look at when you look at the sport, there are so many different, you know, tennis shapes, and uh, a lot of them involve a lunge. But it's an extremely versatile movement that can be done in all planes of, mo- uh, of, of movement: forward, lateral, backward, diagonal. Um, a hinge pattern. What we're thinking about is movement through the hips with minimal movement at the knee. So if I if I think about it, uh, if I'm standing up, I want to think about almost pushing my hips back towards the wall with my torso over top of the ground. My knee is still going to stay on top of my ankle. And what that's going to look like, it's going to look like a straight leg deadlift. Mm-hmm. Now, the difference between a hinge and a squat is the squat is going to get more of that knee, knee bend along with that hip movement. My ankle has to be able to move too so that my knee is going to shift onto onto the over top of the ball of my foot and onto my midfoot. So that's going to be a more knee dominant movement. Rotation obviously is extremely important for tennis athletes. Um, and we can look at we can look at rotation in a couple of different ways. We can look at maintaining my shoulder and hip relationship and almost almost like turning on a skewer. But then we can look at the dissociation of my shoulders and hips and how well I can dissociate that. That's going to make my shots that much more efficient and if i can de- uh, dissociate the, the the upper and lower extremity better that's going to allow me to produce more force got it i hope i covered that you you, yeah, you got I, me in a coach mode you got me in a coach mode there i just i, I flicked the switch excellent that's that's a goal um no, i really appreciate that you know like i said it's helpful for people to um you know i guess be able to visualize the concept so that was awesome um as far as uh, your, you know, you, you posted recently on Instagram that uh, you had to make some adjustments, obviously, um, not being able to get to a gym. Um, and, and so you said that, you know, having limited access to equipment forced you to get more creative with your workouts. I was just curious, um, you know, I, I know people are still obviously uh, working for, uh, or working out from home. So what, what type of adjustments did you make? In your workout, you know, maybe what you used to do and then what you change, you know, when you had to work out at home, uh, that would be kind of interesting to hear about. Yeah, that's an awesome question. That was definitely one of the silver linings of the quarantine and the lockdown in the summer that I would say is, you know, I went from somebody that would get to the weight room probably four or five times a week and and strength training. That that was my primary means of, of, of fitness. Um, I think once, once the quarantine happened, I was completely thrown off. I'm like, okay, I need to figure something out, you know, to do for, for my exercise. And one of my goals that was kind of floating in the back of my head was like, you know, I want to get really fit to prove to my players that I'm as fit or more fit than they are. And, and I'm going to show them this when, when it comes to conditioning time and maybe I'll jump in or Sometimes we play team ultimate football and, you know, I, aside from that, I just wanted to get myself fit so that I can serve my athletes better and I can continue to bring a certain degree of energy onto the court in the weight room, because that's what I I love is I'm a very high energy coach. But what I decided to do was I I actually snuck into one of our facilities, don't tell anybody, (laughs) and I grabbed them. I grabbed a kettlebell and I grabbed um, just some six inch mini hurdles and I have a TRX and, and I love the TRX equipment. 
And what I did was I found just this, this open field on, on grounds here at UVA. And again, it started off really simple. It just started off with some basic kettlebell movements and some running. And it turned into, it turned into just circuit training and experimenting more with the kettlebell and doing different types of, of running, whether it be, you know, long, slow distance and more steady state oxidative work to sprint work. There's a set of, of stairs that's pretty steep on grounds that, that we started running, uh, followed by some laps around the soccer field. Um, and it was really cool. The tennis uh, coaching staff joined me. So it was just a, it was just a really cool experience. We got into a, a good routine of, of, of doing circuits with the kettlebells, um, mixing up the, the running, whether it be slower paced or more sprint work. The stairs was a great change of pace. Um, so it was a really cool silver lining to the quarantine. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, really cool that you did that uh, and, you know, had people involved too. Um, with that, I'm wondering, you know, with, with with not being able to get on the heavy weights, is there still a way to, like, maintain or, uh, you know, reduce as much as possible, like, strength loss? Like, uh, you know, what I'm wondering, I guess, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the question, really, is, like, can you, like, what can, can you do, like, with body weight and other, other ways so that when you get back on, on the weights, you haven't lost that much strength? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that, you know, the biggest thing is just to stay on top of it and, and stay consistent with your training. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you are somebody that has a high degree of strength and fitness initially, you know, even if you, you know, go through a period of time like we just did and, and you can't strength train as, as much as you, you used to, uh, it's going to come back if you maintain that high level of fitness. So, one of the things that that I one of the challenges I was faced with when it came to developing some of the distance based programming for for my athletes here was, you know, okay, how am I going to still address the demands of the sport, having access to and I, and I just I visualize like what can I do in my living room? So, a lot of the ways that that I a lot of the strategies that I utilized in my programming were continuing to program explosive and dynamic exercises like like jumps and different variations of, of jumping and landing. Um, another strategy that I like to utilize a lot was just using tempo and slowing the movements down and creating time under tension and creating uh, that eccentric loading, even though the athlete's not going to have external load. That eccentric loading is going to still produce enough of a stimulus. Um, utilizing isometrics. Isometric example would be like a wall set. Everybody's in dumps. Um, but still trying to stress the tissue, utilizing, utilizing items uh, like tempo, like time under tension, uh, explosive dynamic movements. And then from a conditioning standpoint, still addressing all facets of energy system development, right? can I produce um, speed? So higher intensities at lower volumes. And then how can I still work on that oxidative system as well and go maybe at a lesser intensity, but over the longer span of time. So I tried to attack kind of all of that with some of the distance programming for, for my athletes. Awesome, Justin. And, you know, kind of speaking about equipment, um, are there like what pieces of equipment would you say, you know, like, I guess, let's go back to the average, like, USC player, you know, 3-0 to 5-0. 
Um, what pieces of equipment would you recommend that they, uh, you know, get for themselves to to maximize their uh, efficiency and effectiveness of their uh, workouts, if, especially if they're doing them at home? That's a good question, and and I'm a little bit biased. Um, I've been with um, I've been with CRX training for for almost almost nine years now um, in their education department, and CRX has been a huge part of my life in terms of the way that I train myself and and also the way that I just coach and communicate. But it's such a versatile piece of equipment. I I literally use the TRX at my house, in the park, um, on a random you know sign around grounds anywhere that i could anywhere that i could go during the quarantine so it's extremely versatile and there's a ton of different things that you could do with it so i would re- definitely recommend a trx and then i'm trying to think okay if i'm if i'm recommending this to tennis athletes and the tennis audience the first thing that comes to mind is like okay what can fit inside of a tennis bag so invest in some good mini bands and and do some glute activation stuff daily Invest in some um, some some uh, super bands that are uh, a, a range of of weights, and invest in a kettlebell and, and maybe a medicine ball. You'd be amazed at how much how much you can get done with a kettlebell, a medicine ball, some bands, and a TRX. Amazing. And then, as far as the kettlebells, what's um, you know I know it varies obviously, but like what what's your advice for? choosing like the proper weight and also like how many different weights would you get probably like what range um i think generally generally speaking i would recommend you know people to kind of undershoot it you, you don't you don't want to get something that's too heavy um yeah. but if it if, if it's me and if, if it's buying it for myself um i would probably get you know a, a 16 kilogram or and a 20 kilogram um Kettlebells typically come in kilograms. Just do the conversions of pounds multiplied by two point two. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it just depends on the on the player and it depends on the, the strength level. But I would I would undershoot rather than try to go too heavy because again, movement quality is is of utmost importance. And there's ways that you can still stress the tissue without without load. Good stuff. And actually, going back to uh, TRX, um, could you explain a little bit more? Obviously, you you know you can. You're an expert in it, but can you tell us a little bit more about TRX? Like, what exactly is it, and uh, you know the type of movements that you're doing on that? Yeah. So I'm going to take this straight out of the script. So TRX was developed by um, a guy named Randy Hetrick, who was in the Navy SEALs for a number of different years, and basically. Randy was in a, a on a deployment on a mission overseas um, in, in East Africa or something, and the mission kept getting delayed. And what he decided to do was take some parachute webbing and an old karate belt and stitch the two together so that him and his teammates could perform pushing and pulling exercises with no access to equipment and in this like military bunker while they're waiting to go and do the thing. So it's. It's a extremely versatile tool that's going to allow you know a user to utilize their their body weight and gravity to perform an endless amount of exercises. But the biggest thing is that it's scalable, um, and you can tailor the intensity down for somebody that's a complete beginner and also somebody that's a, a, a veteran and, and has a high degree of experience. And that's what I like so much about it is it does a great job of placing people in positions to succeed. And, and also understand just how to move better and what movement quality is. 
and then you can pick up intensity from there. But obviously, going back to posterior chain, it's going to be great for pulling. It's going to be great for learning how to squat better. Mm-hmm. It's a phenomenal core training uh, tool. So planks and body saws, um, hamstring curls and hip extensions. Um, and yeah, it's something I use daily with uh, with my players, and it was something I used daily during the quarantine. Awesome stuff, Justin. Uh, appreciate that. And so kind of shifting a bit to movement, I was wondering about your approach to um, to improving people's movement. I mean, do you um, do you start with like drills? Do you do you look at their movement and like the way their their legs and feet move and all that? Like what what's the approach? Like if we know that we have some deficiencies, like how should we approach improving our movement? Yeah, so I was actually talking to um, Lee Tap, the speed coach, about this a couple of weeks ago on his on his podcast too. And you know, going back to what I was saying about just people that have been really influential in my growth as a coach, Robbie Ohashi is is, is Kane Shikori's fitness coach, and he's a phenomenal guy, um, just great coach, but an even better dude. Um, he did such a great job of articulating his thoughts on on a, a movement philosophy, and I've kind of adopted that same kind of uh, thought process. And what he does is when he looks at his movement sessions, he'll categorize his encore movement sessions into linear days, lateral days or something across the baseline and multi-directional days working through the angles. Mm-hmm. And, and I really like that because, you know, that provides a very simple template. And, you know, the other philosophy that I really like kind of comes from Kovacs. And, and Mark always said, hey, look, every time you step onto the court to run a session, make sure it has a theme, make sure it has a purpose. So kind of taking those two and meshing them together, it's like, okay, what's my theme or my purpose for the day? Is it linear? Is it lateral? Or is it multidirectional? But to go back to your question, I think you can tell a lot about how an athlete moves by looking at how they move in, in, in a very controlled environment, like a dynamic warm-up. I can look at my athletes and be like, okay, well, this person's got some issues here and this person might need some work there. You can also tell a lot about how they move just by watching them in the weight room as well. So I think just being an observant coach and and paying attention to how your players move can provide some great insight into, you know, what you're going to need from a a programming standpoint. And, you know, and in terms of, of coaching movement, in terms of improving my players' movement, I believe that really, again, quality over quantity. And I think that people need to learn how to, to stop before we get into too much crazy drills. Mm. Um, you know, look, at the end of the day, tennis involves a ton of changes of direction. And I think when I watch even tennis at the highest level, I, I, I see just a lacking of, of body control when it comes to putting on the brakes in both a forward and a lateral direction. So I think it's absolutely crucial to, to coach deceleration before we get into overly specific work and, you know, really kind of complex drills. Mm-hmm. Good stuff there. And so as far as deceleration, um, like what, how, like what types of things do you do to actually coach that? Are there specific um, exercises or movements or like, like what exactly do you have your athletes do to, to train that part of their movement? Yeah. So I just posted a video uh, today, actually, of, of some things that filmed for a player. And I'm like, these look pretty good. I'm going to post these on the gram. Um, 
Yeah. But oh. it's something I like to call ground attacks. But basically, starting from starting from an uh, an up upper a tall position and and snapping down as fast as I can to to teach the loading of an athletic position. And I can do that bilaterally or on two feet. And I can come down on onto one foot as well. And I think that that does a great job of teaching my athletes how to control deceleration and how to absorb force. I love doing uh, low grade plyometrics, utilizing utilizing the mini hurdles and teaching the athlete how to load the back hip, extend and explode up, and then be stick the landing and use that hip to again absorb force. But then when it comes to the actual movement component of it, the movement portion of it, again, it's 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 sticking to it's sticking to simple, right? An, an example would be okay if I have a group of athletes lined up on the baseline. I can have them split step, which we're all familiar with. I can have, you know, a cone, maybe a, a foot in front of the service line. They're going to explode forward out of that, out of that split step and maybe stick in an athletic position and put, or put on the brakes in a split, uh, in a split stance or a, or a launch. But I'm basically teaching them, Hey, look, I want to, I want you to minimize your time spent on the ground after the split step. I want you to explode forward and then bam, put on the brakes either in a base or athletic position or loaded on that one leg. But I've, I've kind of progressed them to be able to do that with, with the preceding movements or preceding drills. Very nice, Justin. Um, as far as, um, you know, you mentioned these different, uh, like Nishikori's movement coach or, or fitness coach, you mentioned these linear days, the, the lateral days, I think, and multi-directional days. So um, do you train those equally or is that another case of I look at K or I look at whoever and I see like what which areas do they need more work on and then I'll I'll emphasize that part more. Yeah. Um I I, I tend to I tend to spend probably more time looking at looking at lateral and multi-directional work. Yeah. Um you know, I, I with with such a small percentage of, of the sport being existing linear mm -hmm. i would rather not dedicate an entire session to that so i've started to treat the linear portion as kind of my preparatory work prior to getting into lateral multi-directional work mm -hmm. so i would say that i spend more time more time there and and if i have an opportunity to maybe have a small group of athletes or an individual session then it's kind of a conversation with with them and the coach in terms of okay what is this person's playing style what areas of improvement do they need to to make within their awkward movement and then it's then it's you know coming up with a plan of attack from there got it got it justin and so kind of a similar question but we, when we talk about um uh just training overall i was wondering um you know again like do you train all of the different aspects like uh you know strength and agility and um you know maybe power and maybe even hypertrophy like do you train all those um during like like all those at the same time or you know like all of them in a given week or do you like train a couple of them you know for like a couple months and then you like you shift to different aspects like yeah i guess that's the question <laughs> yeah i mean so the program the program as a whole progresses and and i need to be mindful of you know, really ultimately where my athletes are in terms of the season and where they're at in the calendar. You know, for example, you know, I sat down and I knew that I would have 10 weeks with my players before they, they left for, for Thanksgiving break. 
But, you know, to, to kind of summarize, I try to attack all those skills concurrently. You know, mm-hmm. if you look at my, if you look at my weight room program right now, we have, we have exercises programmed for power. We have exercises programmed for strength. We have exercises programmed for dynamic and ex- explosiveness. Um, but then there are some more, then there are some more drills done for, you know, high repetition, uh, muscular endurance and tissue tolerance, because, you know, this is the time to continue to build the base. Um, if you look at what we're doing from a movement standpoint, again, we're trying to attack both ends of the energy system spectrum, but we're also looking at, we're also looking at lateral and multi-directional speed. Um, and then, and then you got to factor in a recovery day as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As far as your recovery days, how do you treat um, recovery? Like, are you giving them, I don't know, like, you know, one day off, two day off? Like, how, what's your approach to that in general? So the coaches have a big say in, in when the players are going to have off. And for example, I mean, if, if, the, if the players have a tournament on the weekend and play Saturday, Sunday, maybe Friday, they'll typically get Monday off. Um, Sundays will typically be off in a, in a normal uh, week. Um but a lot of it is collaborating with with the the coaches and looking at kind of what their intensity level of practice has been like on a, on a day-to-day basis and again not being overly dogmatic and saying this is going to be the recovery day you know i need to be a little bit flexible and a little bit adaptable and you know look at the coaches and say hey look you know if we've had a couple of of higher intensity days on the front end why don't i program in my recovery day here to give the the guys and the girls rest but the recovery is all you know active recovery light movement light mobility um body weight light body weight strength exercises um mobility drills uh, foam rolling mm-hmm. good stuff and um, kind of a again like a exercise specific question. I was wondering uh, of your views on, you know, everybody loves to do the bench press and then go to the beach. But um, what what is your take on the bench press? Can that be a useful movement? Is it a useful movement for tennis players in terms of developing some sort of uh, movement or or strength or whatever uh, for the tennis uh, for their tennis matches? Yeah, again, so it's 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 all about context, right? And I think, you know, when I was a younger coach, I probably would have been like, yeah, the bench press has no place in, in, in tennis because it's such a stable and supported environment with, you know, five points of contact, right? It's, it's, it's a fixed barbell, right? It's not quote unquote functional, if you will, right? But that stable environment and that fixed barbell might be exactly what some athletes need to develop basic foundational strength. Um, so it depends on context. Now, personally, I don't have any, any bench pressing, you know, programs into my athletes programs at the moment. Um, my athletes were pressing with dumbbells. Um, and we do some, we do some landmine presses and, and more angled and vertical, vertical presses. Cause I think that's more applicable to the sport, but again, depending on the context and depending on the age and depending on, all these other factors, the bench press could be a great option for the people that you're dealing with. Gotcha, Justin. So, you know, again, this it's kind of a tough question. Like, I'm I'm wondering for those players, um, you know, let's go back to the USCA players, they're, you know, four oh four five, three five, whatever. Um, and they they don't really work out, you know, they just they're playing tennis and that's their only 
exercise um, and they enjoy it and whatever. But then all of a sudden, you know, their mind clicks, whether they're listening to this podcast episode or they see something, uh, you know, feature about training and how much it can help you perform on the court and uh, increase your longevity uh, on the court for years to come. What is it like? What advice do you have for them as far as, you know, these untrained basically players? uh, They just play tennis. Like, what would you tell them to do in terms of like, oh, like you should do xyz or you should train this way or you should like do these exercises like what would you say yeah two things come to mind right away number one keep it simple master the basics um it's not it's not the stuff that's necessarily sexy it's not the stuff that's going to get a ton of instagram likes and get Mm -hmm. reposted but master those seven foundational movements the plank push pull hinge squat lunge and rotate And, and do those things well um, and the other thing is, and this is a very unpopular sentiment in the tennis community is play multiple sports, mm. especially for the young kids out there is play yeah. multiple sports. Um, you know, it, it, the developments of a broad toolbox and a broad motor skill set is completely invaluable for, for younger athletes and developing athletes. Um, and I think it'll go such a long way. So those are the two things that I would say is keep it simple, master the basic foundational movements and, and, and look into playing in other sports. Yeah. Beautiful stuff. Have you read the book, uh, range by David Epstein? I have not. It's a good one. So, um, it, uh, essentially it, it talks about what you just mentioned, uh, uh, that you know, it, the, it's cool because the very first chapter, not to ruin the whole book or anything, but it starts with how a lot of people have looked at Tiger Woods's path and how he just played golf at a young age and that's all he did. And so they've tried to emulate that when in fact it's somebody like Roger Federer who has played multiple sports, who is the one that you should be emulating. And then they go into obviously like other fields and you know a lot of people who you think were specialists, they actually... Uh, became so great at something because they had all this knowledge that they accrued from different sports, different experiences, et cetera, that they use. And, and a lot of times we need those people, like they're more helpful and they can transfer their skills better onto different domains than somebody who's been locked in in one particular area. So it's a really cool book. Um, I'll, I'll tag it in the show notes. Um, but yeah, I definitely agree with that for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds yeah, awesome. I'm gonna have to check that out. But it's yeah, yeah. I mean, I I could talk about this stuff all day, and I think, you know, the the tennis world is just so unique with, you know, parents and and kids and you know wanting to go professional and wanting to to play in college and coaches that obviously want to make a living for themselves and you know you have you know coaches telling athletes that they're going to be the next greatest thing and, and obviously wanting to keep their business. And it's just, it, it, there's a lot going on with tennis. Yeah. Yeah. Ten going on. It's uh, never <laughs> bored. Um, curious about your, your experiences. Uh, I, I know you, you know, you train some great players. Like uh, I mean, one that comes to mind is Fanny Stoller, probably butchering the pronunciation, but like what, how, what was that experience like? Like what, what did you learn from, from working with, with the top pros as well? Yeah, Fannie is an awesome, awesome girl. She's uh, still a good friend of mine. And, and uh, you know, the backstory behind that was I was living in Dubai at the time. And I I made a decision. I was, I told you at the very beginning, like how I never wanted to work behind a desk. But 
I basically left IMG to go work behind a desk in Dubai. Didn't like it. Mm. Fani called me and she was like, hey, would you be willing to come to, to train me for preseason in Melbourne? And, you know, long story short, um, I quit my job in Dubai. 24 hours later, I'm in the air flying to, to Melbourne and I spent eight weeks with her there. And um, it was it was an incredible experience. Um, it was it was it was really cool being able to work with her team of coaches. And that was my you know first experience kind of being with a player and two coaches and just being centered with that. Um, it was my first experience really having one player to focus on. And I think the biggest thing that I learned from my time on the tour is that every city is different and every situation is different and just a need for adaptability. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm such a regimented and routine oriented person. And it was a, a tough to kind of get out of that, but I'm so glad that I, I did. Um, but yeah, the, the tour life with, with Fani and, and Vavara was, mm-hmm. was wild and it was an incredible experience. Yeah, I saw some with uh, Rivera Lipchenko as well. So, um, yeah, curious too. I mean, you mentioned uh, that she called you up. I mean, what was, <laughs> how did you, like, did you meet her through IMG? Like, how did you know her and how did that come about? Yeah, so we met, um, we met at IMG. So this was right after I took the head tennis job. I, I started working with like a, a my first kind of group or cohort of like young pros in their transition year. So it was really cool. It was Fanny Stoller, Jack and Christian. Michael Moe and Miamir Kaspanovic. And um, just awesome people. Again, great players, but just better people. Also unique. Um, and I'm very, very lucky to be able to, to still maintain a relationship with all of them. Yeah, 100%, man. It's, it's uh, so cool that you had that experience. Um, wondering, uh, you know, as far as uh, like just training overall, are there any mistakes that come to mind that you've seen you know whether it's amateur or uh pro or juniors or whatever like just training mistakes that that you found that that are very common that maybe we could just kind of enrich the knowledge of the people listening so that they don't make the same mistakes yeah it, it goes back to just the the what i've been saying throughout this this talk is is i think people make things more complex than they need to 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 more complex than they need to Mm-hmm. Um, again, focus focus on the basics. Move well first before we start to do and incorporate varying pieces of equipment and 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 varying degrees of of complexity. Um, that's that's what I would say. Gotcha. And so again, I know it's it, it like that things vary. It depends on the person. But is there any sort of uh, timeline or or some some philosophy around like how frequently? should you change like a workout you know let's say you you know you have your um speed day like do you do that particular speed workout for like you know four weeks in a row and then you switch it or like how does that work yeah so typically i'll i'll create my programs for three to four weeks at a time okay and 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 and, and progress from there but again it it depends on on what the calendar looks like and it depends on you know, with tennis players, what the schedule looks like and what the, the tournaments are, are, are happening at a given time. And, you know, so much about tennis is just is just being adaptable. Um, and, and again, you can have the, the perfect plan created, but it's that phrase like all plans, you know, all plans are great, and, and, but no plans ever go according to plan. Right. Yeah. So 
I think it's important to be adaptable in that respect. And, um, and, and, and ultimately, you know, not progress until the athletes are, are ready to until, until they demonstrate competency in, in whatever skills we're, we're working on at a given time. Got it, Justin. Uh, as far as Olympic lifts, because I have been, you know, a complete idiot and I've, I've done it like in the wrong uh, form and like injured myself before. But at what point do you introduce that Olympic lifts if you do? And, you know, is that just for a very elite uh, subsection of tennis players? Yeah, so uh, Olympic, Olympic lifting and talking about Olympic lifting for tennis is, is something that kind of gets me fired up as well. And I posted something on my story a little while ago about um, it was a repost and a, and a coach had basically said, hey, look, you know, nothing against Olympic lifting, but you can probably develop the same uh, benefits in terms of a power and explosiveness by doing something like a loaded jump, which has a much smaller learning curve. And, and I very much operate underneath that philosophy as well. Um, now, with that said, I'm a huge fan of the Olympic lifts. I, I love the clean. I love the snatch. And I, and, and I think that they're tremendously beneficial for, for all athletes, including tennis players. Awesome. The problem that I see with the problem that I see with college athletes is that I don't believe that enough athletes are able to perform Olympic movements with the technical proficiency at the speed required to produce the necessary benefits to to justify always programming Olympic lifts. Um, so I again I prefer to stick with something that's that's simpler and has a smaller learning curve like a trap bar jump that still involves a tremendous amount of force production and triple extension but it's it's so much simpler to learn and especially now coming back and having you know 10 weeks before the athletes go go home for break again i need to make sure that you know i'm really maximizing my time with them but again the flip side of the coin is if, if I have an athlete that is very, very technical, technically proficient in Olympic lifts and can, can perform these, these movements uh, proficiently and at the speed they require, why not? Yeah, makes total sense. Got to be at that level to do it. Um, I was wondering, like, when we look at, you know, the juniors you've trained versus the, the pros and the college players, like, is there like a common difference like in the training programs like well i was wondering like what what traits or like what aspects of the programs are different for for the different levels um i, I i'll relate this back to the question that you asked before uh, about img and about how i individualize the programs there mm -hmm. like i said i think when when i'm working with younger athletes so if i have a high school aged athlete the, the program is, 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 is pretty generalized. If, if I'm working with, with middle school and, and younger athletes than that, again, you know, you, you look at it and, 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 and you see such a early specialization sport and you see these kids that are only playing tennis. So in a way, when I'm working with like younger athletes, I am almost doubling like as a physical education teacher and trying to create environments to help them just develop certain motor skills and motor patterns that they're not being exposed to in the sport of tennis. Now, I think when, when the level increases, the program becomes much more individualized, but the, the dialogue becomes a conversation. 
And it's more of like, okay, how are you feeling on this given day and on this given week? And, and, and how can we adjust the program and still stay within the constraints of the philosophy and still attack the goal, but put this athlete in the best position to be successful in doing that? Um, and, and I think the degree of autonomy increases, the degree of complexity increases along along with the with the level because they possess that that professionalism mm-hmm. yeah yeah it makes sense justin all right justin so let's go to a couple uh, audience member questions so we've got a good one from matt m who asks let's say you do help a player improve their physical tools how much mental training is also needed to help them tap into these increased abilities yeah, that's um, that's an awesome question. So thanks, uh, thanks, Matt, for asking that. I think you know, to to answer that, I I try not to look at, at physical and mental as as black and white, and it's mutually exclusive of one another. And I think that mental skills come as as a as a product of of the 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 process that is required to develop physical physical capacities. And you know, I, I sat down a while ago to develop a presentation that kind of outlined my training philosophy. And you know, I look at myself as somebody that develops, you know, physical capabilities and physical qualities that have a carryover to, you know, court movements and court skill and obviously improve performance and prevent injuries. But at the same time, I want to develop the athlete as a person and develop mental skills as well. And when I look at some of the pillars and some of, you know, the qualities that I want, you know, my athletes to develop from a, from a character standpoint, it's integrity, honesty, work ethic, uh, accountability, uh, independence and autonomy, um, tenacity, attitude, um, mental toughness. And I think that all of those things, just to name a few, are things that come over as a result of, of the process of, of workers, working with someone like myself, and, and at least I hope so. Cool. Awesome. Appreciate that answer. Um, got another one from Charlie W who asks, uh, what different levels are of physical training are used for age groups, 12 and under 14 and under 16 plus? Yeah. So I think I touched on, on things. First of all, thank you, Charlie, for, for asking that question. And I think this, this is pretty similar to, um, to what you and I discussed before. I think, you know, looking at somebody that's like 12 and under or even 14 and under, um, we work in a sport that is very uh, primarily early specialized and, and very, you know, dealing with athletes that play tennis as their primary sport and only their primary sport. So dealing with you know, athletes 14 and younger, I almost look at myself as, as a PE teacher. And, and how can I create environments there where they can develop motor skills that aren't found in tennis and, and essentially recreate game-based play that a lot of a lot of kids uh, nowadays aren't getting involved in due to you know the digital age and, and what have you um, and how can I get them you know involved in creative environments where they can develop more, different motor skills that aren't present in their in their primary sport in our case um, it's, it's tennis um, and then obviously as, as the the age increases hopefully the training age increases as well and you know complexity can can increase um, along with that sweet awesome justin um and one other one from heidi s who asks what are a few simple things that you can add into your gym or running workout uh, gym or running or workout to see and feel a noticeable difference in your speed and agility oh that's that's an interesting one so so thanks heidi for asking that so 
first of all, I, I want to precede this by saying that you know speed is speed and agility development is 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 developed over time, and and nothing was nothing is ever going to be accomplished overnight. So there are no quick fixes if you if you if you are going to want something you know done right. Um, but you know, as a as a broad stroke answer, you know, I love the phrase. You know, in order to train fast, or in order to get fast, you have to train fast. And if if you're expecting to to get faster by running long distances, running miles, and running 300s, it's just it's probably not going to happen. Um, so I would recommend starting starting you know by incorporating some types of sprint training into your into your existing program. Um, and again, the same concept uh, concept holds true in the weight room. If if everything is is always done slow and controlled, and there's no explosive dynamic expression of force. Um, you're probably not going to see that type of, uh, of, of carryover to, um, to speed. Sweet, Justin. Awesome. I uh, appreciate that answer. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's been an, an awesome uh, interview. I really appreciate it. And I obviously want people to, to know where they can uh, reach you and follow what you're doing. So where would you recommend that people go to uh, check, you, check what you're doing uh, and, and get updated with, with what you're doing and also the athletes that you're training, what they're doing? Yeah, I think the, my Instagram is the, the best place to probably do that. I, I, I go on Instagram probably more than I, I should, but the Instagram is at Coach Justin Russ, um, and that's where I'm going to be posting a lot more content uh, as far as what I'm doing with, with my athletes now that they're back. Uh, I post stories regularly, and, and that's the easiest way to get in touch with me. And that's, I, I think, how you reached out initially. So mm-hmm. feel free to slide into the DMs if you have questions and um, comments, and I would love to hear some of your feedback on this as well. So Instagram at Coach Justin Ross. Sweet, Justin. Appreciate that. And uh, before I let you go, I'll just ask you this one question that I always ask people or guests, which is uh, what is one key tip that you can give us to help us improve our tennis fitness in your case? Oh man, that might be the hardest question that you've if only one. <laughs> yeah. Um the one tip to improve improve your tennis fitness. Master the basics. Um and 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 when we start to incorporate um on court movements, uh learn to learn body control and deceleration before getting complex. Got it. Got it. Good stuff, Justin. Um, well, I appreciate it, man. It, it, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, I, I really particularly enjoy uh, talking and discussing, uh, you know, fitness related topics with experts like yourself. And uh, I just want to applaud you for all the great work you're doing. And I'm sure it's really exciting to have your athletes, you know, back with you and, and training and everything. So I just want to wish you and um, the who's the best of luck uh, moving forward. And, you know, I'm sure I'll uh, be connecting with you again in the future. So thanks a lot for coming on to the podcast and uh, yeah, appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's, it's an honor to be, like I said at the beginning, just, just to be considered amongst the people that you've sat down with. And and I know you've, 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 you've used the expert uh, adjective and, you know, it's, it's one of those where you always try to constantly improve and constantly learn. So that's what I'm trying to do. And, 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 and it's always, how can I make myself better to, to provide a, a better service for, uh, for my athletes and put them in better positions to, to perform on court. So thank you so much for your time and, and the questions that you've asked were awesome and the audience questions were great. So it's been a, it's been a, a lot of fun having this discussion with you. So hopefully we can continue to stay connected and, 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 and continue to talk. 
100%, Justin. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. And uh, yeah, well, talk to you again very soon. Thank you. Take care. You too. All right. I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Coach Justin Russ. Uh, Justin, thanks for taking your time out of your day to come on to the show. And we persevered over some tech issues as well. But yeah, it was a great time. And I hope that you all really enjoyed and appreciated this episode about strength and conditioning, movement, and programming your tennis training. And if you did appreciate this episode, then I would really appreciate it if you could leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that by just simply hitting the review button on the podcast app of your choice. Um, The Apple Podcast reviews are particularly helpful, but really any review that you can leave would be great and would really help me uh, improve the show and know what is going correctly and what I can improve upon. So that would be really great if you could leave a review for the podcast. I really appreciate that. Uh, And as always, any of the links that we mentioned on the show today or equipment, uh, you can find that all on the show notes page at either tennisfiles.com slash 166 for episode 166 or at tennisfiles.com slash podcast. And then you can click on the episode there and you'll also see the show notes in your podcast app as well. But if there's no link for whatever reason that you can click on, then you can go to those pages. Once again, tennisfiles.com slash 166 or tennisfiles.com slash podcast. And I would like to leave you with a quote, as I often like to do at the end of the show. And this one is by Brett Contreras, a sports scientist, fittingly. And Brett said, if you think lifting is dangerous, try being weak. Being weak is dangerous. <laughs> and so the point here is not that you have to lift uh, 200 pounds. As, uh, if you listen to the show, then you'll know that that's the case. But um, it's just more about making sure that you are strength training that you're keeping up and maintaining and improving the various facets of your tennis fitness because otherwise you'll be at risk of injury if you're not um, strong enough, if you're not flexible enough, if you're not mobile enough. Uh, you know, all those elements are very important. And so you need to figure out the best program for your body and for your game and implement it and, you know, put that program to work. So. All right. Well, really appreciate you listening in on this episode today and uh, just really enjoyed this one. And as always, if you need anything, you can email me at mirban at tennisfiles.com. That's M-E-H-R-B-A-N at tennisfiles.com. Always love hearing your messages. You know, every time I, every time you let me know that you've enjoyed the episode, it kind of keys me in on what I need to be producing for you all. So it's labor of love on this podcast, but it's 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 really fun. So, alrighty, keep safe, uh, stay safe and well, and play some tennis if you can. And we will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. This is Marabon signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit tennisfiles.com.